I was talking with a friend, and he said, we were talking about reading, and he said, the problem with reading is I can read 50 pages, and in the middle of those 50 pages, I can plan my next several months worth of work during those 50 pages that I'm supposed to be reading. And I was thinking, well, you might want to get a more interesting book if that's a part of it. But in reality, I know what it's like when you're, you think or you plan on doing something, but your mind really goes towards something else that's kind of chewing at you. Sometimes it's just, I love my work, or I'm obsessed with my work, and so my mind just goes to that place. Maybe you're like that. There are times when you intend on paying attention to one thing, but your mind really goes to the thing that feels most important, whether that is work or some responsibilities or some worries or some anxiety or some kind of some kind of need. Our minds can go to a place even when we intend for our minds to be focused on our family or a conversation or even just a book or a movie that's right in front of us. You see, I think those things, those places that our minds go can reveal what we often think of as the, the thing we need most. Our minds go to that place that if I could just get this, then everything is going to be okay. If I can just get this thing at work, sorted out, something on the farm, something, some, some responsibility that I have. If I can just get those things worked out, then all of this is going to be okay. Maybe it's a relationship that needs to be sorted out. But all of us have something. It, sometimes it can be something like some way of sorting out the situation that our kids find themselves in. If I could just fix the situation that they're dealing with. And you see, the people and world around us tell us what those things should be often. Our minds go places, but also around us, they say, well, if you would just maybe love yourself enough, if you just took care of yourself a little bit more, if you just had a little bit more confidence, if one of these things would be ter- worked out, then all of these other situations are going to be fixed. All of us have the, the things that we think are our greatest need that needs to be sorted out for our life to be right. But what does God say our greatest need really is? What is the thing that we really need to be saved from? What is the the thing in our future that really needs to be solidified? What kind of love do we actually need? What does God have to say about that? Go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. Today we're going to be going from verses 14 through the end of chapter 7. The book of Exodus, we're walking through a series called I Will Fight For You, is a series of battles that grow larger and difficulties that that get larger. And today we're going to be dealing with the beginning of what we can call the plagues, what Exodus calls the beginning of the signs. But this is really where God begins to reveal to Israel and to Egypt and to Moses and to you and I, what our greatest need is and what God's going to do about that. So turn with me. We're going to be reading, start, we're going to read verses 28 through chapter 7, verse 7. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. 
And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply many signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, help us to hear from you what our greatest need is and how you fulfill that. In Jesus' name, amen. So Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 14, begins laying out, hey, here is Moses' family. It's just, it's a genealogy, but it doesn't tell all of Israel. It feels like it's about to start doing that. But one of the things that the Bible often does in a genealogy is it sometimes skips generations because it's trying to tell us something. Some of the, there are some genealogies in the Bible that tell everybody in the family, but a, a number of them, like Matthew is a good example, will skip some generations because it's pointing us to the ancestors and telling us something that God is up to. This genealogy here at the end of chapter 6 is explaining who the cast of characters in the rest of the book of Exodus is going to be. It starts with the first, the first four brothers, uh, or first four sons of Jacob, and it says, tells them in order. It's the sons of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, the sons of Levi. Uh, and so it, it begins walking through, these are the clans. I'm sorry, I think, I'm sorry that's three. And, uh, so, and so it's explaining who Moses is and who his brother is and who their sons, so they're going to be cousins, are going to be, because these are going to be major figures in the rest of the book of Exodus. Then it begins and it lays out and explains uh, who some of their cousins are because some of those cousins are going to rebel against God and rebel against Moses and Aaron's leadership of God's people. Those are the sons of Korah. And so, and then it lays out, these are who the priests are going to be and how they're related to Moses and to Aaron. So that this section starts by saying, here's the cast of characters that this rest of the story is going to be revolving around. Then it moves back into God repeating to Moses, go, go down to Pharaoh, and say, let my people go. And so verse chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, is, is God's commission to Moses. And where God says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and, then, and Moses is going to say, no, don't let my people go, or do not let God's people go. He's not going to listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. So God, in verses 1 through 7, lays out, this is what I'm going to do. So, Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh are not left to guess what is happening. God has said in advance, this is what's about to happen. So then verses 8 to 13 is where Moses goes into Pharaoh. This is actually the second time because he's been in there once before. Remember last week where Moses goes in and Pharaoh says, okay, you guys can keep doing your work, but I'm going to give you less help. Make Make your own bricks and find your own straw. So this is the second time that Moses goes in. God has said he's not going to let the people go. And Moses, I'm sorry, starting in verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. 
Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So God tells him in advance, this is what's going to happen. Moses goes in, this is the first sign. As Aaron throws his staff down, and it becomes a snake. And when I was a kid, I, was, I tried puzzling. How, how, how did Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing? The Bible doesn't tell us whether they used, they invited spirits demonic force, uh, powers to turn their staffs into snakes or whether they just did what an illusionist would do now and just did a trick. But it tells us that what, what, what happened is Aaron's staff swallowed up the staffs of the magicians. So even if Pharaoh can be like, see, look, my guys can do the same tricks just like your guys can. Moses and Aaron can say, but our staffs swallowed up yours because the God of the Hebrews, the Lord, is greater than the God's of Egypt. So that the first sign is the the staff thrown down. Then just like he had done before, God's going to tell Moses what he's going to do in advance before then doing it. And so verse 14 to 19 tell us this is the second commission. This is God's second prophecy of this is what's going to happen. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord with the staff that is in my hand. I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed to blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. So this is God's first commission, is go and turn the water of the Nile to blood. So this is the, the, one of the largest rivers in the world. Turning, this is the lifeblood of the, the, the nation of Egypt. They relied on the, this river to give them water, to flood their fields so that they can then plant in the following season. And God says, turn the entire thing and all of the water, including in the buckets, to blood. So that's the commission. God doesn't leave the Egyptians to interpret what happens. He's already interpreted it for them. This is what I'm going to do. So then, verses 20 to 24 is the story of God doing that. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. So God, so in this story, that's two signs. God interprets beforehand what's about to happen. You see, if God had not revealed to Israel what his words are, this is what I'm going to do, then they would be left going, well, what does this mean? And they could interpret in any way that they want. But what God starts with Israel and says, here, let me tell you what I'm up to. I'm not going to let you guess. 
There isn't going to be a disaster, and you're going to go, I wonder why the, the river turned red. Was there some kind of an algae bloom? Was there something that happened? No, God says in advance, this is what I'm going to do. So Israel doesn't get the option of interpreting it any other way. This is the work of God. This is what God is doing. And then God uses his sign, his works, to reveal himself to Israel. You see, but he's not just doing that to Israel. He's also doing that to Egypt. This is God's mercy on Egypt, where God doesn't just let them guess, I wonder why bad things have happened. He says, no, I am coming to show that I am the Lord and that I love my people and I'm going to deliver my people. And so God uses his word to interpret his works for the people of Egypt because it is the not, what it, the people of Egypt need is the same thing that the people of Israel need, which is the knowledge of God. The thing that Israel needs to know is this is what God is like so that we can then respond to God. But notice that God doesn't just say, hey, I'm doing something for Israel. He says, he says the same thing for Egypt that he's already said in previous chapters for the people of Israel. You see, verse 5, God says, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Verse 17, he says, This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. And so what God is up to with Israel, he's also up to with the people of Egypt. You see, if, if, we do, if, we just, if we miss this detail, then it just feels like this heartless moment where God doesn't care about the people of Egypt. But we're going to see in later chapters that some of the people of Egypt hear the, hear the call of God, hear the truth of who God is, and go with Israel out of the country. It says that there's a mixed multitude. That some of the Egyptians worship God and respond to God. And so this is an act of God's, God's mercy to Israel and God's mercy to his people. That as God's people know him, they respond to him. That as the people of Egypt know God, they're going to respond to him. It's this thing that we see in 2 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That it's the knowledge of God that changes people. And so what God is doing is showing himself to the people of Israel and the people of Egypt in mercy. This tells us that our greatest need, along with Israel's greatest need, and along with Egypt's greatest need, is to know and love the Lord as he is. You see, I can sometimes think that finances are my greatest need. I, I can sometimes think that fixing my wife is my greatest need. Fixing my children is my greatest need. Getting out from under temptation is my greatest need. I can think that somehow like getting a, a good work situation, getting every relationship right is my greatest need. But this tells us that Israel's need and Egypt's need and your need and my need is to know and love the Lord as He is. And so, God uses His words to interpret His works so that His people know who He is and can respond in love. God uses His words and His actions so that His people can respond to Him in love. And what I want to show you in this, in this passage in our remaining time, is four truths that we learn about God from this, that we are called to know and love. Four truths about God for us to know and love. First, know that the Lord has no rivals. This passage starts by telling us that no, we are called to know and love the fact that God has no rivals. You see, we see it when the, the magicians try to copy the, the actions of, of Moses and Aaron really what God is doing through Moses and Aaron. They can, do, uh, like, they can do some kind of a copy and use a trick 
to transform their own staffs into something that looks like a snake, but their snake and their transformation doesn't rival the work that God has. It's what we see when the, pe- when the people have nothing to drink and the magicians can't undo what God has done. You see, the Nile was where the life comes for the people of Egypt. And so when God shows His power over the Nile River, God is doing a direct attack on the gods of Egypt and the life of Egypt, and He's telling them, there is nobody that rivals me. And so the message from this passage for you is that God has no rivals in your life. God has no rivals in your life. There, Satan doesn't hold a candle to him. He doesn't threaten what, he's, what God is up to. You see, there is no moment of, in your history or in history that rivals the Lord God revealing Himself to Egypt and to Israel and to you and I. Nothing that's happened in the past can rival Him. There is no no possible power in the future that rivals this God. The Lord has no rivals. No culture around us. No cultural movement. Nothing rivals the Lord. And so when we are called to know and love the Lord, we are not making a choice among equals. Going, well, we worship God, but you know, there are other choices that somebody can make. No, Every other supposed God will fall down before the Lord. Every other God, that we, every God of comfort, of self-love, of every God of control that promises, hey, I can deliver you, will one day fall before the God that we see here, the Lord. You see, this is not like going through life choosing ice cream flavors. Oh, I like this one. You like that one. Oh, this one's good. This one's sometimes better. No, this passage tells us that we are called to know and love the Lord who has no rivals. We are called to worship a God that has no rivals. There's nobody like Him. There's nobody who can do what He does. And so, the application of this is for us to look at our own lives and go, where am I tempted to bow down before some other God, some other Deliverer, some other Savior? Where am I tempted to say, This will save me. This will deliver me. This will feed me. This will care for me. And we have to say, no, the Lord has no rival. He is my God. He is going to be the Lord in my house and in my family. He's going to be the Lord over my thoughts and over my anxieties and over my worries and over my future. The Lord, we must know and love the Lord who has no rivals. The second truth that we learn about God to know and love is know that the Lord is in control. Know and love that the Lord is in control. You see, that's why God's words here are so important. We can look at our world and we see floods. We can look at our world and we can see tornadoes. And we can look at our world and we can see disasters. And we can see powerful moments. And, but, most, but we're always left going, I wonder what this means. I wonder, is God up to something in the middle of this? I don't know. Did I do something? Did I not do something? People try to interpret and say, well, this means this in your life. This good thing happened, and that means God loves you. This bad thing happens, and so God doesn't love you, or God must be disciplining you. We are left looking at the world, trying to interpret it, and going, God, what are you up to? Here, this passage, God uses his words so that the people of Israel and the people of Egypt are not left guessing at their circumstances uses chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, and verses 14 to 19 to say in advance, this is what I'm doing. Make no mistake. I'm in control of this. 
God said it beforehand. And so Moses and Israel and Egypt are left without a doubt. God is in control. That's why I love the detail in verse 19. Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. You see, some people try to interpret this passage and be like, oh, the river turned to blood. That means there was some kind of an algae bloom upstream, and so that just turned the river blood. That doesn't explain why the, why the water in the wooden buckets also turned red. You, you can't say, well, the river, it's just some kind of natural phenomenon. God really wasn't up to something. The blood was everywhere. They had nothing to drink. They were, the reason that they were digging along the uh, side of the Nile River is they were hoping that the, the sand would filter the water enough that they could drink it. This tells us that the Lord is in control and tells us that the, Lord, God, the God of Israel, the God who is coming and confronting the people of Israel and saying, this is what I'm going to do, and then he does it. This God is in control of your life. This God is not going to fall down on the job. This God, the God who controls every moment of these signs, is the one who is in charge of your life. And we are called to know and love this God. We are called to know and love not just the theory that, oh, there's a God somewhere, but the God who knows what's happening in the water buckets, knows what's happening with me. And so I'm called to know and love Him. Know and love Him the way that He is. Paying attention to Him. I'm reminded this, uh, I'm re- this, this aspect of, of knowledge. Like, what is it? What do you mean, like, just like theoretically know? Like, oh, I'm just supposed to go, oh, God exists and God's in control. Okay. No, it's this, it's this, it's this knowledge that falls in love with this God. When I, uh, when I sent my resume to Randy, or actually a friend of mine sent my resume to Randy, one of the things that caught his attention, and I think somebody else's attention, was my love for apples and tomatoes. But um, apples in particular, because I still rem- remember the moment that I ate my first Honeycrisp apple. This was years ago. And somebody said, hey, you should try this variety of apple. I mean, we're probably talking, it was probably 13 years ago. And, they, and I went to the store and I was like, who in the right mind would pay $4 for an apple? And then I bit into the apple and was like, this is very different than anything I've ever had before. I've grew up, I grew up with Red Delicious and Granny Smith. I prefer Granny Smith, but I grew up with Red Delicious. And I mean, if it's around, I'd probably eat it, but like, I wouldn't go out of my way. I wouldn't pay anything extra to get it. But after I began to realize, well, what this apple was, and then I began to realize what older varieties of apples were. Some that were 50, 100, 150 years. I found the stories and I found the flavors and I found that things are different. We began chasing down new varieties of apples wherever we could find them. Find an orchard somewhere. A friend says, hey, I have a 75-year-old tree. Just this year when I pruned it, it started producing some apples. Can you help me figure out what kind of apples are on this tree? That was that moment where I began to fall in love with apples. I didn't just know that they exist. I was like, oh, I like this one's really crunchy. Oh, that one's kind of soft. It's always soft. I'm probably not going to waste my money on that apple anymore. But began chasing down, getting more of this. Just yesterday, I was out grocery shopping with our two littlest ones. And I realized the farmer's market was in town. I was like, oh, it's October. That's a good time to see if any farmers around here have 
different varieties of apples, and I'm walking along, and I look over to the side, and I went, oh, they have a kind that's Emma's favorite. We don't see it very often. And I immediately just walked up and pulled my wallet out, and the guy said, you know what you want. I'm like, yeah, because I like apples. And when I see something I've not had before, or I see something that's magical, I'm going to go for it. And that is the idea that we are called to in this. It's not to just go, oh, the Lord is in control, but to like lean into it and to love it and to chase it down and say, Lord, this is what your word tells me about you. And so I don't know what's happening in my circumstances right now, but I know that you have promised you're in control and that you love me. And so I don't just know you're in control, I love it. And I'm leaning in, and I want to know more of that. So what is, what is God like in your life? What is God like in your life? This passage tells us He's in control. He's in control of your kids. He's in control of your job. He's in control of your relationships. He's in control of your bills. He's in control of your past and your present and your future. He knows exactly what's happening, and He promises good for you. This passage calls us to know that the Lord has no rivals, that the Lord is in control. Third, tells us to know and love that the Lord is mighty to save. Verse 5, this is, this is what he tells us about himself. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. How are they going to know that I am the Lord? Is it just because I'm in control of the Nile River or just because I can turn uh, rods into snakes, just because I can predict the future? No, this is what he wants them to know about himself. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. This is when God is revealing his heart to us. The, the heart of God is that he is mighty to save. This is the heart of God. Egypt is going to know that he's the Lord when he delivers. Not just when he sends a storm. Not just when there's some powerful act. Egypt is going to know the Lord when God's people are saved which means that God's special knowledge of His heart coming through His actions reveals that His heart is mighty to save. That is what God is like. That is why the the center of the book of Exodus is not the moral law given at Mount Sinai of Ten Commandments. The heart of God in the book of Exodus is that God delivers His people. We see it over and over and over which means, not just theoretically, that God's heart towards Israel is mighty to save. It's that God's heart towards you is measured in saving actions. God's heart towards you is measured by His saving actions. Life can be hard. J.D. Greer says in his book, Gospel, that he, he invites us to begin to measure God's heart by the cross and His power by the resurrection. You see, here in the book of Exodus, Israel is called to measure God's heart by the Exodus. And so throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel are called to look back and say, God's heart is mighty to save, and he loves his people, and he's working on their behalf. Even when their situation doesn't feel like it, they're called to look back at this moment and measure God's heart in this moment. And you and I, after Jesus, after Jesus' death and resurrection, are called to look back at the new Exodus and say, God's heart towards me is measured of the cross. Even if my circumstances don't really feel like it today. Even if what I'm looking at immediately, my feelings and my despair or my depression or my anxiety or my future doesn't look like it, I am going to measure God's heart by the cross. I'm going to measure God's heart as mighty to save from the book of Exodus. This is what God's heart is. Begin to begin measure our lives by that measuring stick. When we moved in, I spent a week or two after we moved in over here into the parsonage, 
we were in the basement kind of planning what we were going to do. So the kids had a playroom and a play area and a workout space and an office space uh, down there for Emma and I. And one of the kids is like, Dad, it looks like there's a hose on our window. It looks like there's some kind of a hose on the window. And I look out the window and I see an air con- a black air conditioning hose. And I was like, well, yeah. He goes, well, it's moving. And I just thought it was just one of my kids, just imagination running away with them. And then, and I'm just like, it's an air conditioning hose. Air conditioning hoses don't move. Your mind was playing tricks on you. And I, I go on, and within a minute, he's like, it's back. <laughs> Turns out there was this snake, like, rubbing itself back and forth on the window. And I, I was like, if that snake, whatever it is, gets in this house, it's going to do great damage when fear, because my wife will never walk in the basement again. And I didn't know what its markings were, so Neil actually drove up to our house in the moment where I have a shovel out and I'm killing this snake in the side yard. And then I look down and realize, oh, this snake is a garter snake. It's black with gray stripes down it. It's really, it really would have been harmless, except my wife would have never gone in the basement again. So he doesn't, he's not allowed to rub himself against the cool basement windows anymore. And so this, I, once I knew what the markings of the snake were, I'm kind of, okay, if I see that snake again, it's going to be okay. And so a week or two ago, I walked to the post office, and then a two-foot-long snake scurries in front of me ac- across the sidewalk. And in that moment, he's nowhere near our windows. He's not near our house. But I was left going, is this a rattlesnake loose near the playground? Like, what is this? And I look down, and I see, oh, he's black with gray stripes down his back. He's going to be harmless. I don't care. He can go over there. I now I know what the markings of the garter snakes are. So, and he's not trying to get into my house. He's not going to do any harm. I can let him go. Because I knew what the snake was, I was okay with him living in the neighborhood. Because I knew what he was. I knew what his, his intentions weren't going to be to scare or bite or poison anybody in my house. In the same way that I could approach the situation differently when I knew the markings of the snake, this passage calls us to look at the world through the lens that God is mighty to save. And I'm going to measure my situation by this is what he's like. Not measuring my, my, my God by the situations that I find myself in. And so I don't know what it is that you're facing, but this passage calls us to say these are the markings of God. This is what he's like. This is what his character is. This is what his name is. Mighty to save. So we must know that the Lord is mighty to save. Know and love that aspect of Him. And beginning to approach this week, even this moment, this day, by that measurement, God is mighty to save. This is not a one-time characteristic of God. It's always been the characteristic of God in your life. Mighty to save. Will you know and love that about Him? The fourth truth about God to know and love from this is know that the Lord is personal. Know and love that the Lord is personal. You know, I keep going back to verse 5, but this is what he says. They will know that I am the Lord, not when I send powerful people or when I send a big army or when some nice things happen, but when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. God is up to something personally, working to deliver the people of Israel. And then verse 16 says, And then say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. 
This, this is a call to a personal relationship with God to Israel. God himself is stretching out his hand to save his people. And then his people come in a relationship of worship with God. God is a relational God, a personal God, who is inviting us into a relationship, into a dance with him. As he acts in love, and we respond in worship and love. You see, this is the, they, you will know, and you will worship. It's this idea of love. You will know that I am the Lord, and then you will worship. And this, this back and forth, this, it's not a push and a pull trying to get something, but it's instead God in love and us responding in love. This knowledge is bigger than just, well, I know it in my head, because it ends up resulting in worship. We see the opposite of that in Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. It repeats this over and over, but this Judges chapter 3, verse 7 says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. The knowledge of God, they forgot Him. Not just theoretically forgot Him, but they turned away. Their hearts weren't hearts of love towards Him, and so they went to go and serve other gods. And so it's when we know and love God as He is, responding to the God who has no rivals, responding to the God who's in control, who is mighty to save. This passage tells us the thing that we need most is to know and love God as He is. That means that that's the thing that your kids need most. Your kids need, what your kids need most is not better morals. What your grandkids need most is not a little more self-control. What your kids and grandkids need most is the knowledge of God as He is. What your spouse needs most is not a better framework to process what's happening or a little bit less stress, but to know and love God as He is. The thing that you need most is to know and love God as He is. And we we know God as He is when we look in the book of Exodus and we look in the rest of the Bible and see that the God with no rivals is using His control for our good. And then we respond in worship. That's what this passage calls us to. But what if you and I are more like Pharaoh? Notice at the end of this passage we've been studying. Instead, Pharaoh turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. Maybe you're like me and it's so easy to hear this in one ear and turn away and go into our house, not taking it to heart. We're like Pharaoh. It's like there are other things. I have to have this to be happy, to be whole, to get through this. Where is the good news for those of us that are like the people of Israel in Judges chapter 3 who forget the Lord and turn away? Where is the good news for those of us that don't do this very well? The good news for us comes from John chapter 14 where it tells us that Jesus displays His Father to us. That Jesus knew and loved the Lord with all of His heart in our place and yet He died as a lawbreaker in our place too. Jesus, the one who knew and loved the Lord, spending his mornings, spending alone times praying to his Father, says he was always about the Father's work. Jesus is the one who died as a criminal, supposedly taking the place of God, but he was really taking your place and my place. Jesus is our record and our identity and power for all the ways that we have failed to know and love God as he is. 
This becomes good news for us when we have his record and we have his identity and we have his power on the inside. Instead of just trying harder to know and love the Lord, instead the Holy Spirit comes into us because of Jesus' record and identity so that we can know and love the Lord as he is. And know that we have the perfect record living the way Israel should have lived. Maybe you're here today and you realize that you have never known and loved the Lord as He is. Maybe you're here today, you've been raised in the church, maybe you're new or newer to the church, maybe you're young, maybe you're old. You've pretended to know and love God as He is, but never actually loved the Lord. Never seen what He was really like on your behalf. You've been trying to live in your own strength, trying to save yourself. This passage is an invitation to you today to Know and love and respond to the Lord for the first time. This passage is an invitation for you to do what the Bible calls is to repent of sin and trust in Jesus alone to save you. Because that is the response of love that God wants. Empty hands to say, give me Jesus. Forgive my sin. Change me from the inside out. If you have questions about that, let today be the day that you trust in Jesus. Let today be the day that you give God the response that he wants from you by taking Jesus. If you have questions about that, when we sing a response song here in a few moments, come and grab me here at the front so that you can know, hey, I have trusted in Jesus and I can know that God is not just theoretically mighty to save, but has saved me. So I want you to imagine with me now, what changes? What changes if you know and love that the Lord is God. What, what changes if you know and love the Lord as He is in this way? If you know deep in your heart at a conviction level that the Lord has no rivals, that He's in control, that He's mighty to save, and that He wants a relationship with you. Imagine what changes when all of the other needs around you begin to fade away as this rock-solid need is taken care of. But it sounds like a kind of confidence no matter what storms life throws. Imagine what happens in a home when here in our home, not built on how well we can behave, but on the fact that God knows and He loves us and He's working for our good. Imagine what it seems like in a church who, ha- who leans into this greatest need We know and love the Lord as He is. More than that, we are known and loved by the Lord the way He is. Let's pray that the Lord would give us the knowledge of Him. Let's pray for each other that the Lord would would meet this greatest need. God, give us the knowledge of You. Give my kids and my grandkids, give my spouse, give my friends, give my neighbors the knowledge of You because that's what we really need, God. Let's pray that. Father, we thank you for the way that you have not left us trying to interpret the world, trying to understand what you might be like based on our circumstances. But you have instead told us beforehand what you are up to and what you are like, and you have called us to respond in love to you. Help us to do that. Help us to be the kind of church that invites our friends and our family and our neighbors to that kind of God. In Jesus' name, amen.
Would the deacons come forward for communion? You can go ahead and be seated.